episode of the brothers trek about my name is matt coming to you from austin as always and on the other side of texas or halfway the other way from texas <laughs> my brother in houston say hello ken live long and prosper that's right well we're here to talk about the menagerie a great big two-part episode some of which we kind of covered in the episode one that we did way back a long time ago. Go back and find that. It's a lot of fun. I know I spent a lot of time editing it. So uh, go back, check that, enjoy it, love it, eat it up. But here we're going to talk about the Menagerie, mostly just covering those parts that are new uh, with some uh, little bit of me sprinkling in some of the incidentals that we didn't get to the first time around. Uh, initial thoughts here as we start, Ken. What would you think of this episode? So, I'm going to set up a continuum, right? On the Hit one me. hand, on one end is Shades of Grey, which is the episode that ends the second season of Next Generation. It's Eclipse episode. Uh-huh. Paramount said, you've got a budget. You're at the end of it. You've got to make a really cheap episode. We're going to hold you to your budget. And so they came up with this episode where basically there's a little bit of on-planet work with, you know, basically a rock and some colored sky. Riker goes, ow. He ends up in the sickbay where he has to relive a bunch of his experiences, have a, a variety of emotions in order to stave off the, the infection that he has. He's got a virus. It is considered um, one of the worst episodes in the, the uh, next generation. They never really do a clips episode after that. On the other hand, we have Flashback. So whereas Shades of Grey was episode 48, Flashback is episode 44 of Discovery. The premise is almost exactly the same. Tuvok has a virus. Um, he, they, we don't know this in the beginning. In the beginning, we think maybe he's got some repressed memories from a trauma he suffered long ago. But it turns out to be a virus, and he has to relive a particular experience. And because he's Vulcan, he can mind meld, he, he brings Janeway with him. And they go back, and they're on uh, Captain Sulu's ship, and Janice Rand is his, his number one. Right. <clears throat> this is a very good episode. Very highly rated. Very, you know, well appreciated. Yeah. Now, of course, there are no clips. It involves an episode we're already familiar with. This is the very beginning of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, where Sulu's out doing Star Trek stuff, discovering, you know, the galaxy, checking out things. And they, they determine there's a shockwave, brace for impact, what's going on. That whole stuff is, is around with what is going on here, because Tuvok was there as a junior officer. Uh-huh. And he has to relive it several times. Right. It's a very good episode. 
but it's all new content, even though the premise is the exact same as Shades of Grey, which had all recycled content. What we have here is somewhere in between, right? Okay. So on the one hand, just like Shades of Grey, the studio has said, you got a budget, we take it seriously, you know, and so they, they have to make some episodes on the cheap. It's a very short script. It's shorter than most regular episode scripts, even though it's two episodes. And it's full of, you know, recycled content. Yeah. However, in a, in a sense, like Flashback, it's all new. I mean, except for those of us who, who are familiar with the Cajun have seen it, which is not the case for the audience watching in 1966. Exactly. There's all of a sudden all this, you know, new content about something in the way back. These characters have a history. There's a long ago time. There's a previous captain to the Enterprise. Who knew? And, and stuff so, looks different. The uniforms yeah, are different. The phasers look right. different. It actually, because that's actually different. a note I had later. Is just how blown away must you know these people have been? You know, the people watching in the sixties would be like, "Wow, they produced like this whole other crazy episode. Like, what happened yeah. here?" And and uh, so there's in this this continuum. We should probably make uh, you know reference to one other episode because flashback was done as part of the thirtieth anniversary of Star Trek, as was. DS9's uh, uh-huh. Trials and Tribulations, which goes back and basically reuses, it's a clip episode using right. uh, Trouble with Tribbles. However, in that episode, they've got a very clever premise, and the characters have a reason for basically wandering around in this old episode. And it's got a lot of humor, it's got a lot of uh, reverential nostalgia. And yep. it comes off really, really well. It was a, a top-rated episode, very popular, a lot of fun to watch it. So uh, here we have our our world of clips episodes, and we're we're nicely in the middle. There's not a lot of new, you know, the new content here is actually a recycled pilot. Yep. But it, it's done well, and so these two episodes come off uh, very nicely. So the uh, original idea for this episode came from uh, Roddenberry himself. Uh, he knew early on that uh, they were probably going to have problems with uh, not only you know budget problems, but also special effects money, as well as you know just trying to turn out you know a very complicated show and try to get you know a full season out of it, uh, as they ended up trying to do. Um, and he asked for this early on. Because the idea was that uh, you know, he really wanted to show this amazing pilot episode that he was uh, super proud of, of course, as anyone would be. We talk about in that first episode how great uh, you know, the show looks, how um, just a great, it's just a great thing in and of itself. So, of course, he wanted to get it on the air as possibly could. So, uh, even without a story outline, NBC was like, yeah, let's go through with this. But they had two caveats. The first was which, that it had to... They had to work in the new the new cast, the new you know, crew. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kirk and everybody, uh, comprising fifty percent of uh, the material, had to be in the two part episode, and that the network would only pay for one of those two episodes because they figured, hey, we already put together a bunch of money for this pilot. Right. Well, Desi Lu was not very excited about this because they were going to lose money. 
they were going to basically lose a hundred grand that they'd normally be paid for from NBC to produce, you know, another episode. Right. However, they went in saving, you know, almost 90 grand because they were producing two episodes for the price of one. So, uh, it took them a little bit, but finally they decided, oh heck, we'll go ahead and go through with this. And as soon as they got the okay from Desilu and NBC, <laughs> well, scripts got out of hand. So, you know, there's uh, Roddenberry suddenly like, ah, I got too much other stuff going on. Let's, uh, I'm going to go ahead and work on these rewrites. And then when we really get into it, we'll go ahead and, uh, we'll go ahead and get to it. So, uh, the, they gave it to uh, John D. Black. This was his second script that he was going to work on. And uh, so he wrote a first draft and then abandoned it because they needed an urgent rewrite on The Enemy Within. So when time came for Roddenberry to, uh, to write the actual story, John D. Black had already said, you know, see you later. I got to go. You're driving me crazy. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> so Roddenberry wrote up a brand new script with a brand new name. Well, John D. Black, knowing how Roddenberry had been treating all of his writers up until now, decided, uh, hey, 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 I bet you there's some of my script in this. So he filed a suit, with, or he fired a grievance with the Writers Guild, saying, hey, I want to get credit for this. So, uh, you know, he submitted his script, but that was all. He figured the script would stand on its own. It would be proof enough. But then Roddenberry submitted his own written statement, basically saying, you know, hey, him and I talked about what the script was going to be like. So a lot of these are my ideas anyway. And so since they didn't have John D. Black's side of the story saying otherwise, they all ruled in favor for Roddenberry, which, of course, was just the nail in the coffin there for John D. Black. And, of course, Roddenberry was a member of the, the Writers Guild himself. He'd done mm -hmm. a lot of writing. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, you know, sometimes you get into one of these situations where one guy's a writer and the other guy's just a producer. And the writers all kind of band together and protect each other. Right. But the fact that Roddenberry himself was a writer... Uh, you know, was a member of that guild, probably was, uh, you know, a little bit of protection for him. So as he's in the middle of writing this new, uh, this new script for these two episodes, uh, he suddenly comes up with a question that he has to ask himself, which is, uh, are we going to have any hang up with the original cast members <laughs> as far as using any of this stuff? So uh, it took several months, but uh, they finally got uh, almost everyone to uh, sign a deal. Uh, Jeffrey Hunter got another $5,000 for uh, airing this episode. Mae Jill Barrett got 750 and then John Hoyt, who played uh, the doctor, also got paid $750. But oddly enough, the person I don't see on this is uh, the, the lady who played uh, Vina. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't look like she got paid at all for this episode, so. Actually, uh, the lady who played Vina, no, is it Vina? No. The, the lieutenant, uh -huh. the young redheaded kind of girl, she comes back. She plays Commodore Mendez's secretary, I believe. So there are two members of the original cast who come back, and you know they're, they're kind of extras in the new production. Uh huh. And so one of them, I think, is that lieutenant who becomes the Commodore Mendez secretary. And uh, I forget who the second one was. Well, I think it was Majel Barrett because she's the voice of the computer. Yeah, but she's always around, so she didn't count. Fair. It was people who were just in the original cast. Oh, okay. And I don't remember who the other one was. The only other person that they end up having to fight for for money was Leonard Nimoy, who wanted his uh, $1,250 for the use of his footage. Uh, him and his agent figured that, hey, we were getting screwed out of a second episode anyway, because everybody in this was only getting paid for one episode, since they were only kind of filming the one episode. And 
So Nimoy figured like, hey, I might as well try and get my money. Well, Desilu thought that he was being ridiculous and that he was already getting pay- he'd already gotten paid for the pilot and there was no way he was going to get paid again. So, uh, although, I mean, everybody wants to get paid for this pilot twice, right? right? Exactly. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, everybody else got paid. CBS is like, hey, we already paid for it. We're not going to pay again. Yep. Lou's like, wait a minute. But, you know, we're this time it's going on TV. So how come we're not going to get paid for it? Right. You've got Jeffrey Hunter, who's getting like a boatload of cash. Yeah, exactly. You know, merely because it airs. You know, it's it's one thing for these people to get like their extra seven fifty. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. You, you kind of wonder why nobody can you know, like come up with seven fifty <laughs> from Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, they went hunting for an actor who obviously looked hunting. <laughs> I just realized my own joke. Uh, went, they went hunting for another actor to play Jeffrey Hunter. Uh, so they found this guy named Sean Kennedy. Uh, Kenny. Uh, when he went into uh, his audition, they kept <laughs> putting up a picture of Jeffrey Hunter next to him. And they're like, well, you look a lot like this guy. You've got his eyes. It's really kind of all we need because we're going to put you in a bunch of makeup anyway. So uh, he, they, they, you know, we see the makeup in the thing. They kind of tie his eyes down a little bit with scotch tape. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of a, a heck of a shoot for him. Uh, he kind of just became part of the furniture because he couldn't talk. In mm-hmm. the uh, in the thing, so he's like literally, would people would forget I was there? He's like, I heard all sorts of gossip going on on the set because everyone forgot I was there. Um, uh, so uh, you know, Kenny Baker has some similar stories about playing RTD. <laughs> yes, too. exactly. He got left in there for lunch one time. Like they all left for an yeah. hour, and he got <laughs> stuck in the R two thing. Another thing about Sean Kenny is that uh, because he was such a trooper, uh, Gene Roddenberry came up to him and said, you know, hey, great job. You did great. Uh, and they offered him a recurring role as Lieutenant DePaul, uh, the ship's next helmsman. So he's on for the next two or three episodes as well, playing that character. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's all who you know. You know, go in, do your job, don't cause a stir, and sometimes you get hired for even longer. So they're, they're telling all the That's actors right. nowadays. Uh, they went to the original director, uh, Robert Butler, and uh, said, uh, hey, why don't you just do the entire two hours so it'll be all directed by him? He kind of said, no, thanks. I've already been there. I've done that. Um, but then was quoted four dec- decades later by saying uh, he just didn't get it. He didn't understand Star Trek. He said, uh, mm-hmm. to me, it's too preposterous, too clean. It's too wordy. You know, Twilight Zone, that was preposterous and wordy, but, you know, it was in black and white. It was like a half an hour. You know, they're about the same size in our television history, Twilight Zone, Star Trek. I can get with Twilight Zone because they're these good yarns, but I honestly did not get Star Trek, he says. People love it, and I'm not going to argue with it, but for my taste, it just seems too square-jawed, too heroic. Yeah, I don't know. I'm mystified, he says. Surprisingly, they went ahead and got this all done uh, under, again, Mark Daniels directing. As I said last time, they had, uh, they had uh, finished up literally one morning with the court martial, and then that afternoon had started on the menagerie and still managed to finish it all in five and two-thirds day. So, uh, you know, no, no prep time at all given, uh, given to him for this one. So uh, the only other thing worth mentioning in the behind-the-scenes stuff is, is that uh, the uh, – the editor on this episode, whose name I did not write down because I am an idiot, but will someday get back to you and tell you all about, uh, actually knocked out both episodes, editing both episodes together in about a week. Um, nice. Yeah, it was pretty impressive, even uh, especially, obviously, in the 60s when you're dealing with, like, actual film as opposed to, you know, video, video editing, the way we got it all easy today. Uh, but... Uh, uh, 
the producer, Robert Justman, you know, sent a memo to Gene Roddenberry saying like, hey, man, we got to get this done in a hurry because nobody at Desilu thought that this was going to get done in time. They all thought like we're going to miss an air date. Something bad's going to happen here. But as it ended up happening because of what the editor did, uh, he got it done in that weekend. But Justman went to Roddenberry saying like, please don't, you know, try to hold back on the notes. You know, we need to uh, make sure that he can get the job done. Well, of course not. Roddenberry still went to him saying, hey, this is going to be, I'm going to finally put my masterpiece on the air. I want to make sure that I give him the notes. So <laughs> the editor ended up working through the weekend and uh, by Monday night had finished both episodes and the next day had quit. So <laughs> that's what happened to him, which is so sad. Man. But uh, Roddenberry did send out a very like praising episode to everybody on the behind the scenes whistling saying, great job getting this one all out. And it sure enough made its air date. So that's the best part of the story. Uh, I got nothing else to talk about as far as that goes. You got anything else you want to talk so, about before we jump into this? Yeah, let, Let's say, uh, you know, just in case people either don't remember or didn't, didn't listen, listen to us last week, the previous episode in production order was court martial. Correct. In which Kirk gets court martialed. And so it was a, another courtroom drama they introduce the dress uniforms and we're going to basically use the same set. We're going to have the same kind of a show this time. Uh, Spock is in the dock and we yep. get to wear the, the dress uniforms again. You know, it's also funny too, is, is that, and this is like one of my first notes here is that the start date on this one starts in the three thousands, but mm-hmm. the court martial episode, the start date is actually two nine something, something. So how interesting that, like, Starfleet is, I mean, because basically if we go in the history of Starfleet, you know, not in the airing order, you know, these are two, you know, very high command uh, people on the Enterprise going up for a tribunal, and uh, that can't look good at all. That's all I got to say. It's like, what is going on on that ship? Exactly. (laughs) Nobody's paying attention to the rules. You know, as we we realized at the very end, the court-martial in this episode was a hoax. Oh, that is true. It's an illusion by the Telosians. So only the people who were actually physically involved thought there was a court-martial going on. As far as Starfleet was concerned, represented by the real Commodore Mendez, not the one, illusion who went on the on the ship with them, Yeah, he, he's like, oh, everything looks like uh, this is on the up and up. We're going to approve, you know, uh, we're going to waive General Order 7 this one time because of special yep. events and because of, uh, you know, Captain Pike. So in in that sense, this one was kind of a mock court martial, because as far as Starfleet's concerned, it didn't really happen. It's a very good point. That's a very good point. All right, let's jump into it. The menagerie, folks. Captain's log starting. It's five-year mission. So uh, we start off with that beautiful starbase matte painting there. And uh, this, too, is also Starbase 11, just like we saw in the Court Martial episode as well. So this must be where, uh, this must be close to wherever the Enterprise is. Uh, They were diverted there, says Kirk, uh, but apparently the Starbase sent no message. Confusing, interesting, what's happening? Kirk assures him that Spock had received the message, um, a message saying that they needed to be diverted there. They start talking about Pike. There's been, I like I like how this this is a thing. There's been subspace chatter about what happened to Captain Pike. Like everybody's just yeah. like on the on the on the comms going, "Oh my gosh, did you hear what happened to Pike? Oh, it's not good. Oh, that's that's weird." That's you funny. figure this, you know, what was it? Uh, 18 years ago, 
was when the events took place. It was a while ago. What? Well over a decade. What events? Uh, Talos 4. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. From this point. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so Pike's been around the block for a while. He's been captain for quite a while. And then he becomes uh, commander of the uh, of the fleet, right? Fleet captain. Yeah, fleet yeah. captain. So he's probably got lots of people he served with, you know, people who know each other, people who have now kind of spread to the four winds of Starfleet. Yeah. So I imagine a lot of this chatter, this subspace chatter, was actually people who'd served with them talking to each other. And in fact, this is probably how Spock got, you know, into it all. Yeah, I'm sure somebody who he served with. Somebody else who was in that episode that we hadn't heard about. Right, or it could have been number one, or yeah. it could have been, you know, uh, uh, any of those characters contacting him going, do, do you know what happened? And then each one of them kind of has to talk to each other one, you know, as as these kind of communication networks go, right? Like at work. You know, something, uh, something comes up and everyone talks to each other individually. It's not like everyone gets together, yeah, especially yeah, yeah. in this case. You know, because there's apparently at no time did, like, the crew come and, like, have a ceremony or, you know, celebrate his life or, <laughs> you know, because, for example, they didn't retire. Well, it's not dead yet. Yeah, but they didn't, they, it, had he had right. a formal retirement ceremony, for example, which they didn't do because right. they didn't have the heart. True. That would have been an occasion for a bunch of officers to show up and right. say, hey, great career, great guy. We love Chris Pike. So uh, we find out that uh, Captain Pike is in ICP up, uh, is in ICU. Uh, so they go up there to see him. Uh, we hear what happened just before we walk in the door. They're really like preparing us for to see the god awful mess that is Pike now. A plate had blown up on a on a training mission he was on. He was exposed to the Delta rays, and it's funny when they mention the Delta rays. Like Bones gets this look on his face, like, "Oh, geez, Delta rays. That's not well." Good, and it's, you know? it's Bones who figures it out, right? Right. Oh yeah, yeah. He says it. That's yeah, right. So, oh, was it the Delta rays? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but he went back in and rescued some of the other crew. Uh, you know, some of the other crew members. And uh, so, uh, boom, they walk in, and there he is sitting there. Like half of his face is like red and scabbed, and the rest of it's like all scarred, and his eyes are bent. Uh, uh, Jamie was like walking through the room at this point and she's, she's like oh my god it's a Dalek <laughs> and I was like no no it's Davros you know and she's like well now we know his origin story don't we so Delta Rays that's pretty great <laughs> exactly Delta Rays now we know so they kind of ask if they can hang around but Pike says no I don't want to see anybody so he kind of sends them off but Spock asks to stay behind which Pike grants you know, he's got his little light control. You know, two blinks mean no, one means yes. So, you know, a lot of people ob objected. And we have the advantage in knowing just how far medical technology has come in the past, you know, 40, 50 years. Right. And to us, what would almost make more sense is that in the world of Star Trek, if that guy didn't have like an, you know, a Iron Man suit, right? <laughs> right. Was it, you know, because apparently you could read his brainwaves. And today, yeah, we are doing things where, you know, you can manipulate little robot arms with your brain. Well, not only that, too, but think of uh, uh, his name's gone. Who's the guy in the, the, the really smart astronomer right. guy who's in the 
who's in the wheelchair, right? He can just look at it, you know, he can look at his computer screen and, you know, type out things and then it speaks for him. You know, right. it's like something like that could probably be, be done today as well. Yeah, Hawking. Hawking, yes, thank you. Yeah, so the fact that, you know, Chris Pike doesn't even use Morse code on his little blinky thing. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. That he's, you know, that we can't reach him, we can't, you know, I can understand why you know, you'd have a simple yes, no for a lot of routine kind of, you know, uh, interactions. Are you okay? Do you need anything? You know, can I get you some water? You know, whatever he's, but the fact that they can't communicate at all with him, can't, yeah. he can't do Morse code. I don't know. <laughs> or some similar. Yeah. Maybe space Morse code. <laughs> <laughs> that seems very 1960 Star Trek. Yeah. We get a reference, uh, you know, when when Spock insists on using the video but not explaining where it's coming from, right? And Commodore Mendez is like, you know, this this is a a court of space law. <laughs> it's so great. I love oh. that they got to put space in front of everything. I know exactly. Now, see, that's like nineteen fifties sci-fi space food. <laughs> yeah. Well, you talk a lot about in. In the original episode of this, uh, when we were talking about it, you talk about how like there's a lot of like elements of sci-fi, you know, like 1950s sci-fi in this, the Telosian mm-hmm. big heads and that kind of stuff. So this that's the perfect example of it. You know what I mean? Space law. <laughs> <laughs> Space law and order. Dung, dung. All right. So uh, Spock has a plan. He's trying to tell Pike about it, but Pike refuses to go with the plan. What's the plan? What is Spock doing? I don't know. We're building, you know, more teaser stuff here. Or not teaser stuff, but we're building more uh, tension here. Spock claims that his plan is treacherous and mutinous. And Pike continues to say no. Spock, oh, wait, this is in the teaser. So Spock says, uh, no, 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 no. We, I must do this, he says. And boom, we go into opening credits. So I wonder, what, what was Pike objecting to? Was Pike objecting because he thought it was wrong? Or was Pike objecting because it was illegal? Or was Pike objecting because you're, you're just going to get yourself in trouble? Listen, I'm not worth it. That's, that's kind of what know. I think. I feel like he's, protect, he's trying to protect Spock. Yeah, I mean, I kind of get that feeling too. But I, uh-huh. we're, we're, we have to read a lot in because he doesn't get to explain himself. <laughs> well, that's true. No big speeches from this guy. Uh, so, uh, back from the opening credits, back from commercials, Commodore, the Commodore is there checking out Spock's story of the message spent, but there is no record record of a message being sent to the Enterprise. And then this heated exchange takes place between the Commodore and, uh, and Kirk. He's like, Spock is lying. And the captain accuses someone else, you know, Kirk, you know, accuses somebody else of like tampering. There must've been somebody. Why would anybody do this? But the fact remains, says Mendez, that Spock is the only person who knows anything about the message. Well, if he would have wanted to come and see his former captain, he could have requested leave, and I would have granted it. And then Mendez just ends it with, well, that's true, of course. <laughs> and so dramatically. Yes, exactly. Oh, well, good fight. Okay. Is, you, you've made your scene, point. I feel like, uh, like that really could have happened. Like that was real dialogue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The guy, you know, he's ready to respond to whatever Kirk says because they've been getting a little bit heated, yeah. right? And then, so he's got the tension in his voice. He's, he's like, well, that, 
And then what he's got to say is, well, it's true, of course. <laughs> that's, how, that's how it feels. <laughs> you know what? I, I will give them credit for this, though, is, is that, like, he reads that line any other way, and that mm-hmm. becomes a joke. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But just as perfect, as, as, like, as dramatic as he read that line, it is not a joke. But you can't help but laugh at it anyway. I mean, there's not, it's just kind of a funny little thing. But... Again, he plays it perfectly because, again, either side of the way he plays it, and that's a, it's a joke. It suddenly becomes a joke. Well, that's, of course, true. Is, yes, that's true. You know. So they call down to records, and they're like, hey, you got to check for the impossible, basically. Then Spock sneaks in, and he Vulcan hand, hand pinches the record keeper. We, we go back to the office. We meet Miss Piper, who uh, recognizes G.T. Kirk immediately because apparently – she had a friend who apparently knew Kirk in some kind of way. More inferred philanderings, you know. But then uh, Piper then says, you know, perhaps Spike is... Or, <laughs> Spike. <laughs> I wrote that so many times, you don't even know. <laughs> Spock is... <laughs> is, is that's that their, their shipping, shipping name? That's just what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Spock and Pike. That's their shipping name. Spike. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god alright anyway so uh, Piper then infers that perhaps Spock is being loyal to Pike and not Kirk uh, and again they say his mind is as active as yours or mine they, they make this point again just to let us all know like hey he's still got a lot going on right there but a battery runs his heart he says we've got uh, stuff so one of the ways I look at an episode like this is what do we learn about our big three characters, the ones who are featured in this episode? Right. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. What do we learn about Starfleet? What do we learn about how the world works in the 23rd century? So really all we get out of McCoy is an insistence that Spock could not behave the way we know, in fact, he actually behaved because he's a Vulcan. Right. Now... As we know, they're just developing what it what Vulcan is. In fact, sometimes we're still calling it Vulcanian. Yes, exactly. Whereas in Star Trek history, the way it's it's panned out, we know that in the Enterprise era, Vulcans had a terrible reputation for being clever and tricksy and secretive. If you went to the Enterprise crew, you know, in the Archer era and said, Gee, you think a Vulcan could be lying? You'd be like, of course a Vulcan could be lying. You know, when are they not lying? When are they not right. keeping secrets, holding back, being deceptive? And so, in one sense, the in, in-world sense, for Vulcans to have gained such a reputation by the McCoy era, because McCoy's making, asserting this, and he's asserted it before, that Spock could not lie. You know, on the, on the one hand, you've got the, did they just write it that way? Because they needed to, to you know, create, instead of, like, establishing over a season that he's super, super honest. Right. Engages in radical honesty and would never lie. On the other hand, we're like, well, he's a Vulcan. Isn't the lingering reputation of the Vulcans, you know, from the Enterprise era still out there somewhere? And then, of course, they'll play with this forever. Yeah. You know, we watched uh, Star Trek II just recently. 
And you get the same thing when he's doing the... He, the Starfleet regulations say you can't speak openly if communications are being listened to. Right. And so he, he uses a coded message. And... You know, Savick is like, you lied? No, I, I complied with the rules. Exactly. I, didn't, I didn't openly say when we're going to do stuff. And so uh, this whole thing about Vulcans and lying just seems interesting. Knowing what we know. Right. And the fact that it's really only asserted here. Because every time someone asserts, well, he's a Vulcan, he couldn't lie. He is, in fact, being deceptive. Someone's done some fabulous PR for the Vulcans in the past 50 years. Apparently. Could be Spock himself. He could have spent, you know, like the, his previous time, and, well, all the, Vulcan, I cannot lie. All this time in Starfleet. That's all he's doing. Yeah. His yeah, own like, propaganda for his, uh, for his planet. Exactly. So uh, back in record keeping, Spock, speaking of, uh, contacts the Enterprise, trying to give it this top secret mission. But in the middle of that, he's caught by the record keeper. They fight, but then he Vulcan hand pitches the second guy. He finishes feeding the Enterprise his uh, misdirection. Back upstairs. I don't know why I assume it's upstairs, but uh, I'm assuming record keeping is down in a lower level than... I could be wrong than the Commodore's office. Back upstairs, uh, they, they're watching a screen of Pike, and he just keeps pressing no. No, 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 no. Uh, Kirk and... Now Kirk and McCoy are discussing how active his brain is. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Kirk suddenly suspects, well, maybe it is Spock, you know. Uh, Forget the fact that we both know him, says McCoy. He's Vulcan. Ah, but he's only half Vulcan, says Kirk. Well, but the other half is completely submerged, says McCoy. (laughs) Then I love that. Wait a minute. Weren't Vulcans renowned liars? (laughs) Like a hundred years ago? Um, yeah, didn't they have, like, terrible reputations? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but then I love what McCoy says here. He's like, suspect me? Sure. I could run off half-cocked for any number of reasons, but not Spock. It's <laughs> 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 so great. That makes a lot As more As we sense. see in the man trap, almost, you know? Uh, so Kirk is back in the uh, Commodore's office. Then we uh, we see the book about Talos Four. No one's allowed to go there. And it's the only death penalty that's on the books. I think that's interesting. Blowing up a planet? Yeah. Not necessarily, but going to Talos 4, it's trouble. See, I understand restricting it. I just don't understand, you know, why the death penalty. Well, this is restricted. This means business. Yes, exactly. We really mean it. Yeah. We're not kidding. Uh, So then the Commodore opens the sealed file. (laughs) I like that little way that they do that. That was neat. Uh, we learned that the Enterprise was the only ship to go there. And in the file, it's written, you know, Captain Pike and the half-Vulcan science officer Spike. I'm thinking, <laughs> how wildly inappropriate is that? I mean, you're not going to yeah. be writing in any official file, you know, half-Native American science officer, half-Peruvian transporter chief. <laughs> These are things you're not writing in any official, uh, official files. But uh, anyway... But maybe you're right. Russian navigator. Exactly. But maybe you're right. Maybe because the Vulcans were so looked down upon back, you know, back then, they were like, well, we got to put that he was a Vulcan in there. Well, I understand saying that he's a Vulcan. Okay, hit me. Right. Well, so we see so few non-humans in Starfleet. That's true. Right. 
you know, it really does feel like, as the Klingons will tell us in Undiscovered Country, that this is the Homo sapiens only club. Yeah. Now, we get a sense that there are Vulcan-only ships. Presumably, there are Andorian-only ships. Now, we can go out of the world, out of Star Trek, and go, well, they hadn't invented all these other people yet. True. Haven't invented Tellarites or Andorians, let alone other member worlds. Well, and Spock's supposed to be the first Vulcan to have gone through Starfleet, right? Yeah, which is hard to believe, but okay. So Starfleet is actually founded before the Federation is, and it was founded by Earth. Right. And it may just be that Starfleet is full of a lot more humans, whereas the Federation Science Academy, the, the Federation Diplomatic Corps, the Federation Corps of Engineers, you know, all these other institutions which may be post-Federation are much more evenly balanced, and that Starfleet still feels to Andorians and Tellarites and Vulcans as kind of being an Earth organization. I don't know. That's fair. But for whatever reason, whether it's they just hadn't written them, it's expensive to put all these guys in costume. I mean, imagine if True. every fourth character was blue and had antennae or, you know, had the Tellarite face or even just had the ears and was supposed to have kind of a green hue to him. Right. Costuming, you know, the budget would just be way more expensive. Exactly. And so then we remember get, in the uh, in the uh, animated series when they had that crazy Star Wars looking creature that was in it. Yeah. He was the helmsman or whatever. Yes, yeah, so we see a lot more non-human characters in Next Generation. Well, even by the time and we hit the movies, you know, all of those like Starfleets. You know, all, yeah. all the Federation shots, there's always people, always crazy amounts of... But they got movie budgets. True. So they can just spend, you know, a gazillion dollars having 14 makeup people dress up a room full of, you know, aliens. Yeah. Whereas, like, in Next Generation, we get a lot of people whose... The thing that says you're an alien is very subtle. Yeah. You know, it's a nose prosthetic, it's a little forehead prosthetic... You know, it's, it's basically the ears, right? right? And a wacky haircut and some interesting outfit. And you go, oh, look, alien. Rather than, you know, say, uh, who are the silicon people who are, I can't remember their names. The silicon people? The Sheliak. Ah. The Sheliak. At one point, you know, Picard's got to negotiate this complicated tree with them and it's got to be worded exactly right and... You know, you get a sense that they have an alien intelligence. They have an alien appearance. You know, everything about them feels alien. Whereas in the original series, it's just a bunch of humans. Everywhere you look, it's humans. And when they want to, you know, something I didn't mention in the last episode, which I forgot, so I'll bring it up now, is you look at that panel of the court-martial guys, yeah. And it looks like, oh, wow, they're they're actually making a point that this is a global. Someone is represented from every continent. You've got a Hispanic guy. You've got a black guy. You've got an Asian guy. You know, it's it, the, an Indian guy. Right. You know, this. it's almost like, like a, a Benetton ad, right? <laughs> yes. They are making the point that this is a united Earth. And lots of the themes of early Star Trek is that Earth is united now. 
This is a United yep. Earth effort. The bridge crew isn't an intergalactic unity. It's an Earth unity. We got the Russian, the Nigerian, the Asian, the European. Oh, look, here's our alien, our one alien. Yep. Whereas you'd think in a federation of many, many worlds, you'd have like intergalactic diversity, not just human diversity. So uh, throughout the whole, this whole scene, uh, that Piper chick has been watching Pike on a screen. I don't know why. There's no reason why. But then we realize why. It's because the story needs us to see that Pike is now gone. <laughs> we couldn't have gotten a call from security saying, hey, uh, Pike's missing. We don't know what happened to him. We couldn't know we had to have her watching the screen. Because a second and a half later, now security calls anyway to tell us that the Enterprise is now warping out of orbit. And it won't answer Hales. Dun, 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 commercial. And we're never told that there are two guys who just woke up in the records room. <laughs> yes, exactly. Claiming to be assaulted by a Vulcan. Uh, so when we come back, Spock makes an announcement to the crew, telling them that uh, they are now on a big top secret mission. Spock, uh, <laughs> I, I wondered about this because he says that Kirk was left behind on medical leave, right? Which was kind of a mistake right. because McCoy could easily debunk it. You know what I mean? He even tries mm -hmm. to. He's like, I didn't know anybody was leaving him by enough. What are we talking about? So he takes McCoy to see his patient, which of course turns out. Well, he had basically just had a conversation with him in which they were discussing whether or not Spock could be engaged in treachery. Right. Yeah, exactly. And here's Spock saying, oh, by the way, Kirk has given me special orders and now he's on forced medical leave. And Yeah, right. You suddenly have to question it. <laughs> And the doctor would be like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? This is madness. So we get down to Pike's room. Spock tricks McCoy by playing this tape, supposedly from Captain Kirk, saying, you know, hey, just go ahead and pay attention to what, uh, what Spock's saying. He knows what he's doing. No one will ever believe those tapes ever again. Oh, I know. Exactly. And then not a you, you could bring up a tape in which Kirk is saying, you know, can you bring me a ham sandwich? He's like... I don't know. <laughs> does, does he really want to hand Right, exactly. I better call him and ask him. Yeah. <laughs> Pike is still in the corner, sadly hitting, you know, no, no, no. Back on the bridge, Hansen sees that a shuttlecraft has started following them. Spock again demands no contact with the shuttlecraft. Then on the shuttlecraft, we see that it's Kirk and the Commodore attempting to hail the Enterprise. They don't answer. Kirk basically saying to uh, the Commodore, you know, you didn't have to come. And Commodore was basically like, uh, well, yeah, no, I had to. I got to go. I had to go. Rank has his privileges. Rank has his privileges, exactly. Uh, back on the 1701. Those Telosians, they're clever guys. <laughs> uh, back on the 1701, Spock is following the uh, shuttlecraft energy levels. He starts to realize that there's, uh, there's no way that the, uh, the shuttlecraft could turn around and go back. Back on the shuttlecraft, Commodore's like... Now, see, here we learn something about Captain Kirk, don't we? Hit me. What do we learn? Well, so Kirk knows this is his ship. This is his crew. Right. So he's going to go past where he you know, can safely go, relying on his crew to be like, oh, we can't strand you. We can't leave you there. Fair, fair. Yes, yes. He knows people are going to be saying, hey, you know, this is a problem. <laughs> And then even in the middle of his mutiny, Spock's going to turn around the ship and come get him. Exactly. Kirk says, uh, I kind of hope that we don't make it. Because if we do, as soon as we step on board that ship, that's the end of Spock. 
And, and uh, Mendez is like, well, he's dead if he makes it to Talos 4. Okay. McCoy is now pissed, right? He's standing up there basically tapping his foot, you know, like, oh, I wonder who's on that shuttlecraft. He's saying Spock lacks the, tra- lacks the tracker being onto the shuttlecraft and then puts himself under arrest. So in this scene, he says, Hanson, you're in command. But then he basically surrenders himself to McCoy. McCoy's the one who's telling the the security guards what to right. do. Well, Hanson. But Hanson was in command. Well, he's well, he's under operational command because you notice they like he says it differently. He doesn't say like, "Well, I've given him command." He's like, "No, he's operationally under command." But still, the person with the highest rank is uh, is our unfortunately our doctor right now. So, so well, I mean, of course, there's also Mr. Scott, right? Well, that's true. Who just happens to not be on the bridge, but he's also the chief of security, <laughs> and he's also the transporter chief as well. So you know, it's it's plausible that the chief of security might have. So who's also the the in this case, he's he's the third in command, so he would be in command before Kirk arrives. Might have some decisions to make about what kind of security levels Spock put under. Yeah, but we do get the interesting McCoy. exchange. In which he surrenders himself to McCoy, and McCoy basically has to say, uh, "Is confinement to quarters okay?" Yeah. I think that was the point of this interesting exchange. Whereas, if it had been Mr. Scott, he may have just gone by the book. Yeah. Exactly. This is what the rules say. I'm the security guy. I'm not gonna. I, you know, I'm not going to go light on you because you're my friend because I'm the security chief. I really have to be by the book in terms of how I lock people away. <laughs> exactly. Because if something goes wrong, I'm going to – like if something goes wrong, you go, doctor, why don't you let him ha-? – and this is basically what happens when when uh, Kirk arrives. Yeah, exactly. He's like confined to quarters. <laughs> but, of course, it was the doctor. So what do you say? Doctor, you use poor security protocols? You're like, I'm a doctor. Not a jailer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Kirk beams aboard under Scott's steady hand. We find that the Enterprise has come back online and has continued its way to Talos Four. And then I love it because Scotty in a huff is like, "Duh, I'll go see what I can do about this." You know what I mean? He just like runs off. Uh, <laughs> and then meanwhile, so then confined to quarters, Spock is just watching his machinations unfold. You know, he's just like, "Yeah, I can still watch anything on the ship that I want to." Uh, who knows what else he's got going on in his quarters? That's right. We also find that any attempt to stop the ship is going to fry life support. Dun, dun, dun. Commercial. Back at it. Stardate 3012.4. Our first, in ca- our first captain's log of the episode. A preliminary here is being convened. It's the most painful moment Kirk has ever experienced. Immediately, Spock waves his right to representation and, uh, and uh, end this hearing and prefers to go right to the court-martial. Request denied, says Kirk. You need three ranking officers. Aha, says Spock. We have the Commodore, we have Kirk, and we have Captain Pike. As you said, we didn't have the heart to retire him. Kirk calls him invalid, but Spock assures him. Invalid. <laughs> Invalid, invalid. Invalid when something isn't valid. <laughs> well, I don't think Kirk calls him an invalid. That would be horrible. <laughs> he did. <laughs> He's an invalid. <laughs> Whatever. 
We move to the court-martial. Spock has entered the plea of guilty. The Commodore demands that Spock explain why it is necessary to bring Pike to Talos. Spock requests a monitor to comply. It seems that they are continually being manipulated by Spock, because now just Mendez asking why has now said, uh, well, this gives him the right now to present evidence. So then we get to our first shot of the, uh, of the original pilot episode. In the original version, it was this weird shaky cam version into the bridge. So this part was actually remastered for this version, but not for the original pilot when we watched it. I thought that was weird. Mendez calls foul. He says, no ship makes records so detailed as this. And yet I say in the court-martial, we did see some very detailed uh, recordings coming from the ship. So, Including pressing that button. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. The Commodore contests. He's saying this evidence is out of order since Spock refuses to reveal its source. Then we go back to the pilot. Dun, dun, dun. It's funny because as, you were, as I started watching the, uh, the pilot, the stuff from the pilot contrasting it to what we know now it's funny how like bare the bridges like it's barely you know mm-hmm. has it doesn't even it doesn't have a lot of color or now you know the doors a lot of those are lights red. seem to be turned off yeah that too i thought that was too i said that was my next note and their screens aren't on so yeah it was really weird yeah. how like just kind of blue and bare that the ship looks and the bridge looks on that uh that pilot episode also thought it was funny. This was something else that I didn't notice the last time was, uh, you know, Spock's reading the, the screen or whatever. And he literally like swipes right to make the screen move. Yeah. I thought that was funny. Like, like, you know, an Android or something. I thought that was funny. Or like, uh, we get a lot of this. Now you watch like, uh, any of that stuff with Iron Man and the, I forget the name of the guy who is the Iron Man. Robert Downey Jr. Well, I mean the character. Oh, Tony Stark. He's, He's, yeah, Tony Stark. So he's a great inventor developer, and, and he's you know y- using the swipes to make the various computer images move you know here and there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holographic computer. So it's almost like, whoa, you totally anticipated this gesturing to make the the screen swipe. Of course, Apple has patented that, you know. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah. One other thing I'm going to mention about the pilot stuff, and then we'll move on. Uh, was that they uh, in the remastered version? They added a, a window in Pike's in Pike's quarters, which I thought was funny because he didn't have yeah he didn't have one uh, in the other one. Uh, so the, basically, the rest of the pilot stuff, you know, has them finding the radio waves and then Pike's decision to go to Talos Four. The com- uh, so the Commodore stands up and he's you know he thinks that all of this footage was just fake. But uh, I Pike compliment backs up. you on your imagination. Yes, exactly. Well, like, what did he do? He's like, uh, you know, shoot, I had a joke there, but I forgot what it was. Anyway, moving on. Pike backs up Spock's claim that this was uh, that everything happened exactly as it uh, as they saw. Spike says that if after watching this evidence, we still want to turn the ship around, I will give you control back. So Spock here now as I see it, is bargaining that everyone will want Pike to go there and live out all of his fantasies with Vina. <laughs> right. And, you know, that's his hope. That's what, he, that's what he's doing all of this on. The Commodore yeah, He's, he's going to prove so conclusively right. that the Telosians have amazing mind control and can give you anything you want. He can go home with his horse. He can be on Rigel, you know, and fight the, the guy he just fought. Yep. He can, you know, 
be on Orion with the slave girl. I mean, they can do anything, and it's totally realistic. And we've got those scenes of the old doctor uh, telling us of how amazing their yeah their mind control is. So what you know, once it's been hammered home and you've seen it multiple times, that their mind control is amazing, and then you realize at the end with this reveal that Vina herself has been crippled by a disaster, in her case, a uh, spaceship crashing. Right. And she's living this presumably happy life, you know, with the illusion, because she doesn't feel pain, she doesn't feel awkward, she has the illusion of being happy and healthy, that you can go, you could give that to, to Fleet Captain Pike. Well, you know, it's funny, while we're on that subject, apparently in this version of the Menagerie, they did not give her her own Pike. So what has she been doing for the last 18 years on that planet? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the- you do get you, you get the dialogue. You'll, we'll give her that and more. And that's when she got her duplicate pike and they walk away together. I guess that's true. But they needed that scene for the end of this. <laughs> yeah, the they needed it one. for the end. So he, yeah. you get the line of dialogue. Uh, we'll give her that and more. And then they're all just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> whatever more is cool. Yeah. So uh, the Commodore then, you know, comes back at Spock by saying, he is in no position to argue. I want to call a halt to these, all of these proceedings. So, but Kirk says, no, 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 I think they should go on. And then even Pike agrees to continue with the proceedings. So we have to remember at this point, knowing what we know, having watched the whole episode. Right. That Commodore Mendez is an illusion by the Telosians. So in a way, his objections have two purposes. One, to keep Kirk involved in in the trial, because as the as Spock tells us, the Telosians believe that as long as he was involved in a court martial, he wouldn't be trying to take over his own ship again. Right. And two, it's it's plausible to reason that they are trying to move Kirk into a more Spock sympathetic position. Yes. You know, by taking hardline positions where Kirk's like, no, 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 wait, that's too hard. We got to hear him out. We got to see his evidence. Well, it's so I think that's part of what's going on there. Well, I also think it's interesting, interesting too, at this point because Pike now has agreed to continue with the proceedings, even though before he was all like, no, 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 you know, with his protestations. So that's interesting. Well, I, I think one of the things that happens to him is one. To the extent that Spock was going to get in trouble, Spock is already in trouble. True. So we're, I'm not protecting you by saying, no, 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 let's call a halt yeah. to this. Well, yeah, you're in trouble already, buddy. So that's that's bridge under the water, or that's water under the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the bridge should never go under the water. No, that would be bad. <laughs> so we come back from a commercial, and we move right back into the pilot episode. Quickly, they beam down. Uh, they show the Spock smile. Uh, we find the raggedy men, the hot girl, Vina. Uh, they show the Telosians looking. That that should be a band name. What's that? Vina and the Raggedy Men? Spock, oh, the Spock Smile. smile. <laughs> that too. <laughs> uh, then the Raggedy Men all disappear and Pike is taken down below to the cage. So the screening ends. Uh, we get a message from the fleet for Mendez. We discover the images that we have been watching have been streaming from Talos 4. Dun, dun, dun. Kirk is relieved from duty and Starfleet, 
they actually say Starfleet, asks Mendez to stop the transmissions and take the ship back by any means necessary. And so we, we should remember again that this isn't really coming from the Starbase, where there's an actual real Mendez who's just watching the stuff going, looks legit to me. Instead, this has to be the right. Telosians, because in part, the message is addressed to Commodore Mendez, who's not really on the ship. So this must exactly. all be from the Telosians. And it's not from, it's not from Mendez. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. From Mendez to Mendez. <laughs> yes, exactly. I need myself to take command of the ship and do whatever's necessary. <laughs> the Commodore also reveals that Spock has not only put his own crew in danger, but his captain as well. Spock tries to argue that Kirk ha- knew nothing about this, but the Commodore pulls out the old standing rule that a captain is responsible for everything that happens on his ship. The Commodore asks one more time for Spock to return control to him. Spock respectfully declines. And court recesses. Kirk stands up asking, Spock, have you lost your mind? Spock first calls him Captain, then becomes more personal and calls him Jim. Please do not try to stop me. They must watch the rest of this transmission. Do not let him stop me. Yes, do not let him stop me. So Kirk says, lock him up. As the episode ends, and just before it ends, Kirk pulls the Picard maneuver. <laughs> he straightens his shirt. In case you didn't get that. So I had this thought as we are now settling at the end of episode one, going into episode two. I wondered if they did a lot of two-parter stuff in the 60s. You know, mm-hmm. I know that there was probably a lot of like serial television going on, maybe not even that much. But yeah, I know that there were soaps and that kind of things going on. But I wonder how many like two part episodes, you know, were people watching Star Trek and was like, what? Continued next week? You didn't finish the story? What is happening here? Well, I think I- serials are well enough established that you wouldn't be like, I don't understand. What do you mean continue next week? Right. They'd be like, ooh, a serial. Hmm. Yeah. Flash Gordon. Two parter. I mean, I guess I guess the Adam West Batman always did it, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Tune in next week. But that's Batman, and it comes from the serials. You know what I mean? Right. So I don't know. Hard to say. So uh, moving into part two, we get this uh, first opening teaser here. You know uh, that uh, brings you up to speed of everything that happened in last week's episode. Uh, this is a good little teaser that I think, you know, a teaser is supposed to be like, hey, we were watching the other show. We haven't turned the channel yet. What's happening in this? You know, what's what's this show about? So this is kind of a good one to like suck you in because right away Spock is like, I'm guilty. You know, plus you have all the, you know, images from the amaz- from the original pilot, all that stuff. Pretty easy to get sucked in. I think this teaser works really well. So the images are still being beamed to the Enterprise and there is no way to stop it. Commodore Mendez reminds us that uh, no ship is allowed to have any contact with Talos IV. Uh, but there's little to be done. The Keeper has taken control of the screen, meaning we wrote ourselves into a hole and we can't find any other way out of it. So you have to keep watching. Um, then uh, more stuff from the pilot happens. We come back from the pilot episode and Spock sort of recaps everything that we just saw by letting us know that the Telosians had total control over Pike's brain. Uh, they could make him relive anything that's already happened, be anywhere they wanted him to be. Uh, you know, Even though he knew he was in a cell, it didn't help because he was still there. Which brings us up to a question that we had in, in the uh, first episode, you and I talking, can you die in the illusion? 
But actually, Vina answers that question because she says that uh, any anything that you would feel inside the illusion, you will feel in real life. So you get bonked on the head, you're going to feel the bonk on the head. I guess that means if you get ripped apart, you're going to feel that. You get shot in the head, you're going to feel all of that. You probably won't die, but it's not going to feel very good. Right, yeah. So uh, then there's more of the pilot episode. Then we so come this, out this of the pilot episode. This would be a, a terrible form of torture if the Romulans yes, got Yes, exactly. Yeah, right? No kidding. Or the uh, Cardassians. Or the Cardassians. Yeah, you like wake up every day and you get like, re-eaten by a... Or like a giant eagle comes and eats your liver. Yes, exactly. It'd be awful. You got to push a rock up a hill. <laughs> okay, there are only three lights. Stop the eagle from eating me. <laughs> uh... We come out of the sequence again. Uh, right at the very end of the sequence, Pike is being hugged by by uh, Vina. We cut to Pike, whose head is hanging low. And you can't tell because of what happens next. Basically, they're saying, hey, the the Telosians have stopped streaming because Pike is fatigued. Yeah. You know? So we can't tell if he's hanging his head low because he's like, oh, geez, Vina. Duh. You know, if that situation or if he's just tired. Or maybe it's emotionally fatiguing, and that's why they stopped. Can't quite... Or maybe there's not proper support in his chair. <laughs> or that. Or that. <laughs> at any rate, Pike is fatigued at this point. And Kirk says, uh, so uh, I guess they do care about Pike. Yes. Mendez tries to push Spike... Or Spike. <laughs> Hate my life. <laughs> I even wrote Spock that time and it still says Spike. <laughs> and I still say. Anyway, Mendez tries to push Spock into telling it uh into into telling him the rest of the story without having to watch it, but Spock says my answer would be too unbelievable. You have to see it for yourself. Again, we got to give the we got to give them more reasons to watch what's happening as opposed to just telling you what's happening. Mendez is clearly ir- irritated as we go to commercial. So for those of us who've been watching Star Trek for a long time, the idea that this is a species with phenomenal telepathic abilities that can make you believe anything, we just be like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. I've seen those episodes. Yeah. But this is the first episode with amazing telepathy that doesn't involve super beings. Yeah, good point. So back from the commercial, it's Stardate 3013.2. Another day has passed. So uh, we go back to the pilot. We start where Vina and her uh, non-answers that drove me crazy, where she's constantly like, uh, no, it's fine. It's, everything's great, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we find that we, uh, um, we find we have learned more about Vina and her place on this planet. Mendez says, were you captured as breeding stock? Pike says, Pike says, yes. So uh, that's part of the way. I mean, that's only partially true, I guess, at this point. Uh, and I said that last time, too. I said that, like, these two are, you know, they're trying to get this together to help repopulate the blah, blah, blah. But you were like, but you said last time, oh, yeah, well, they also need him for his memories, too, because they need to broaden their horizons so that there are more adventures that they personally can go on because they're crazy. Well, they've also got, like, all that equipment that they don't know how to maintain. <laughs> true, true. That's So true. getting people with, you know, technical experience, it, it used to be said that when American advisors would would show up and help out, you know, Central American armies, uh-huh. their equipment readiness rate would go from like 50% to 100%. So I'm sure part of what they're wanting in terms of his memories is 
practical knowledge. You know, do, you, do you know how to fix this stuff? Do you know what this is? Do you know what that is? Yeah. Spock agrees that it was breeding. He agrees with you. He says, uh, yes, it was partially just breeding, but it was also more than that. We go back into the pilot. Uh, this is where Pike goes into hell, then has a picnic with Vina, who's still not sharing any answers. Then we pop out of this. kind of hell. What's that? It's a different kind of hell. Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, <laughs> then we pop out of this memory and talk about uh, Vina as the green Orion slave girl. Mendez tells us that they are vicious, seductive, and no male can resist them. As we fade out to commercial, when we come back from the commercial, we are still on the Orion slave girl. Kirk even says, uh, is, is Pike beginning to weaken here? Uh, we come back, Vina doing some more bumping and grinding on 60s TV. Uh, I think even that outfit nowadays can kind of make you raise an eyebrow. You're like, oh, that's pretty, uh, that's a pretty skimpy outfit for the 60s. Uh, then we also get Spock screaming, the women, the women! <laughs> when I saw that, I thought of how you, you were taken by his, the women. The women! <laughs> Then uh, the so now the women are on the planet. Vina has competition. Uh, then Pike tries to escape by tricking the Talosian into you know seeing that everything that knowing that everything that they're seeing is fake, and he's going to bet the Talosian's life on it. So back on the Enterprise, the screen has gone dark, and uh, Spock doesn't understand it. He begs Pike, "Hey, tell them we need more time. Uh, it's your chance for life." Kirk says, "You keep talking about life. What kind of life? Living in a cage, amusing his keepers?" No, says Spock, there is more. Just watch. And yet nothing happens. Mendez calls for a, a vote of guilt or innocence. Pike votes, votes for guilty. Mendez votes for guilty. And so does Kirk. And we go to commercial. Such the cliffhanger. When we come back, we see the new, more colorful Enterprise Bridge. Uh, we learn that they are pulling into orbit around Talos. Spock now... <laughs> Which looks an awful lot like Earth. Right. I mean, I thought I could make out North America, Central America, South America, and Florida. Really? I didn't look that closely at it. That's funny. Uh, Spock says, aha, now you will all see. And they go to the screen. Why are they still in this hearing? <laughs> like, no time has passed. There's already been a verdict. Like, why are they still sitting here watching this? But there they are. They are. They're watching it. We go back to the pilot. Back on the surface, Pike tries to uh, call the Enterprise, but the Keeper won't let them. So Pike decides they're going to just blow themselves up as opposed to being kept captive. <laughs> Here's another funny thing I didn't notice the first time. Is, is that like by just looking at her communicator, number one says, uh, hey, uh, the, the Enterprise is working again. Uh, the transporter, transport is up and running. So I guess she got a text message on her, uh, her communicator there. It's just emojis, you know, well, a picture of a transporter and a thumbs up. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, good. maybe she just got like a like a cell phone. You know, it's like I got no signal. Hey, I got a signal. I got a signal. Yeah, exactly. I got three bars. <laughs> <laughs> All my bars are back. Vina refuses to go, and then uh, we see her true form again. So this is this is the connection. Then this is why we've been here. So now we see that Vina in her asymmetrical shape that she's in, not really being able to walk, not looking beautiful, has been able to walk around and look beautiful and being so obviously this is what they can do for Pike. We can have yeah, him have all the experiences of a full complete human being. Exactly. And Kirk turns to Mendez who then promptly vanishes. 
The trial wasn't real. Neither was Mendez. Oh, no. Kirk says the thing I've been thinking, which is, uh, you could have just come to me and explained the situation. And then Spock says, but that you, too, would have faced the death penalty. We get word from Starbase 11 that uh, they, too, have been watching the images of, what's been, of what the Telosians have been sending out. And in light of this, the Commander Mendez says the ban is lifted just this one time without any penalty to Spock. Kirk gets in a jibe about Spock's emotional state flaring up in this whole episode. To which Spock replies, no need to insult me. I've been logical about this whole affair. Then the Telosians see fit to uh, make it look like a Pike is walking, and they go back into the mountain with Vina. And that is the end of this episode. Directing credit for this episode was uh, Robert Butler. He had directed the pilot, and since more of episode two was the pilot episode, they gave him credit for this one and gave uh, Mark Daniels credit in the first one. Which makes sense. Yep. So real quick here, last couple of things we'll hit on before we wrap her up. Part one came in at uh, number two on the night ahead of Bewitched. This was also Thanksgiving night. So, oh, but uh, part two, sorry, part two. That was part one. Part one came in second place. But part two, when it was on Thanksgiving night, uh, won the second half of its time slot. So uh, that was very good go. for them. In the very immediate future, the Menagerie Part 1 and 2 combined to make a feature-length production, which was then nominated for a Hugo Award in the category for Best Science Fiction Presentation for the year 1966. Among its competition were two other Star Trek episodes. The book, wow, pretty good. Yeah, the book says, stay tuned for the winner, but I have to imagine that it must have been the... Uh, the <laughs> I was going to say the restaurant at the end of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Douglas Adams, why are you in my brain? The city on the edge of forever. That was what I was trying to say. Uh, That was the one. There's an edge in there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Last thing to bring up on this episode, that even despite the fact that they lost their $100,000, Desilu lost its $100,000, since they were able to get two episodes for the price of one, they actually came out ahead on the cash surplus of this of $22,000. Sadly, right after this, they cut their budget. So they went from uh, 196000 to $180,000 uh, per episode. So they lost a little bit of their extra cash. And then that's it. That's all I got for this episode. How about you? We cover all your notes, sir? I think we did, yeah. Perfect. Got them all. Excellent. So uh, tune in next week when uh, we will be talking about the episode Shore Leave. I think uh, all right. in an episode that's almost... Uh, filmed entirely on location for the first time in Star Wars history. So that'll be something worth mentioning, not to mention Alice and a rabbit and a lot of other fun stuff that we get to see in this episode, including, I think, something out of Kirk's past as well, right? That's right. I know a little bit about this episode. I'm warning y'all. All All right, well, that's it for me here in Austin uh, saying farewell. Uh, Ken, say goodbye, Ken. Peace and long life. As always, like us on the iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, follow us on Instagram at the Brothers Trek About for some stupid Star Trek jokes that are always a good time. Uh, next week's episode of Shore Leave is actually going to be on YouTube, so uh, feel free to tune in and watch us there. But until then, we will see you all next week. 